but there are two passages that I want to read for you to kind of set the stage, set the table, as it were, uh, for what we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, the issue of doubting disciples, the issues of how do, we, how do we go through times of hesitation, how do we go through times of doubt in our lives, and do that in such a way uh, where we're moving toward the Lord, where we're trusting the Lord, uh, where we're following Him. And I'm going to read both from Matthew chapter 28, so keep a finger there, and then go back a few pages uh, in your Bible to Matthew chapter 14, and I'm going to begin reading there. And both of these are familiar passages of Scripture. What I want you to do as I read, I want you to give your attention to thinking about what's going on in the text, who's there, what's happening, what are the various responses of the people to what's happening, and what, chiefly, what's the Lord do? What's the Lord say? What's our Savior say in the middle of those circumstances, in the middle of those situations? So Matthew 14 comes right after the feeding of the 5,000, right after a day of a busy day of ministry, and Christ sends his disciples out to go across the Sea of Galilee, and not an uncommon experience, the wind isn't cooperative with them. So let me read the text, and as I read, you follow along. Uh, how are the disciples responding? How does Christ respond? Chapter 14 of Matthew, verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now when the evening came, he was alone there, but the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come out to you on the water. So he said, Come. And Peter had come down out of the boat, and he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid, and began to sink. He, and beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him, and said to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. So hold that in your mind, hold that in your heart. What was taking place, this, wind, this contrary wind, this storm on the sea? How were the disciples responding? How did Peter respond? How did Christ, chiefly, how is it that Christ responded to Peter's doubt, Peter's hesitation? Now, Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. And I'm going to begin uh, at verse 16. Verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, so the same region, to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. So they were, there was a specific place they were familiar with in some of the hillsides out on, around the Sea of Galilee. Appointed place, appointed time. They arrived there, and verse 17 says, When they saw him, they worshipped him, 
but some doubted, some hesitated. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, here's the question. How is it that Christ responded to his disciples when they doubted? And you bring it to the present day. How does Christ respond to his doubting disciples? And we're going to spend our time in Matthew chapter 28 and looking at that and saying, how do we demonstrate faith in the Lord? How do we demonstrate trust in the Lord in the middle of our doubts? But before we do that, we need to work through a couple of things in in other passages of Scripture uh, as we move toward answering this question and then talking about the question of how do we respond in our doubts. First thing we need to do is define doubting. The two texts that we read in front of us, uh, the disciples had their doubts. Peter, okay, Peter, they see Christ coming on this in this stormy sea. What, who is this? Is this a ghost? Uh, Christ announces it as him. Peter says, if it's you, call me to you. And Christ does what Peter asks. And Peter climbs out of the boat and keeps his eye on the Savior and is walking on the water. And what happens? He ha- he's afraid. Like, who wouldn't be afraid in that situation, right? He's afraid. And he starts to sink. What's Christ do? He rescues him, and he says, why did you, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? Um, and this, the doubt that he's speaking of is this doubt of hesitation, this doubt of wavering. You find the same thing in Matthew chapter 28, which is really rather amazing. Okay, so you think about where this is. It's at the end of the gospel. It's after the disciples had seen everything of the earthly ministry of Christ. You could understand if doubted as they saw Christ's body taken off the cross. But they had already seen the resurrected Christ. And they're coming to this appointed place at this appointed time, demonstrating faith. Christ told them, be here at this place at this time. They come and it says they all worship, but some of them still had their doubts. I hope that gives you some comfort. You know, they, they, they experienced all of the ministry of Christ And they could worship him, but they still had their doubts. And how is it that Christ responded to them? Now, if you're thinking through texts of the New Testament, you may be saying somewhere in your own heart, yes, Jeff, but what about James chapter 1? Okay, James chapter 1, you don't need to turn there, I'm going to read it for you. James chapter 1 says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally, generously, without reproach, without a scolding. By the way, let that, think about that for a minute. If you lack wisdom and you ask God, what kind of God are you asking? You're asking a God who is generous, and you're asking a God who never says, what are you doing here again? He's, he's generous, and he doesn't scold. And you ask, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. Hold on a minute. Do we have a contradiction here? Let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like the wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So you have doubts. 
recorded in the, in the Gospels. Peter doubts. And what happens? The Lord rescues him. The disciples are doubting after the resurrection. And what happens? God continues to use them. But you have in James chapter 1, James saying, if you doubt, you're not going to receive anything from the Lord. How do you sort that out? Well, the meaning of a word is governed by the way the word is used in its context. No surprise there. We use words with different, the same word, and it has a different nuance of meaning depending on what we're trying to communicate in that context. And in James chapter 1, you have another word there that's really significant. This doubting person isn't just hesitating, they're double-minded. The word is literally two-souled. This is a person who, as they go through life, they debate God's purposes and plans for their life one moment, one mind is I want to follow the Lord the other mind is give me my own way (laughs) I want to follow the Lord I want my own way I want to follow the Lord give me my own way and there is this shifting of faith that goes on I want the Lord nope I want my way I want the Lord I want my way. And, and James says that type of a person, that double-minded, that two-souled person in their doubts of passing judgment over the purposes of God, that person's not going to receive anything from the Lord. By the way, when you're that type of a person, you wouldn't know you got anything from the Lord if you did. Because one minute you want this, the next minute you want that. And how would you know you got what you wanted? Because you're shifting all around following the desires of your own heart. The doubts we're talking about this morning are not the doubts that say to the Lord, I want my own way. They're the doubts that we all have, right? We all have. If I asked you to stand up this morning and I said you could sit down if you've never been through a time in your life where you've had any doubts or hesitations about what the Lord's up to, I suspect all of us would be standing, right? How does God respond to us in our doubts? And we aren't left guessing. And it's best to be not left guessing because during those times and during those times of doubt and hesitation, we all say stuff to ourselves. And the stuff we say to ourselves seldom is well aligned with what God says to us. And you notice in these texts of Scripture that we read that we aren't left to our own devices to figure out how is it that God responds to us in times of doubt. How is it that our Savior responds to us in times where we're uncertain, hesitant, doubt in our walk with Him, in our relationship with Him? What is His heart? You've seen it in the text in front of us. The heart of the Savior in the midst of our doubts is to rescue us and to grow us. Right? Many many times in our doubts, if, if Christ responded to us in the way that we think He would respond to us, where would we find Peter today? <laughs> At the bottom of the sea, right? You know, we think, oh, I've got my doubts, I've got my hesitations, and then he's just going to stand there and go, too bad, sink down to the bottom, there'd be archaeological hunts today for his bones. That's not the heart of the Savior toward us. The heart of the Savior in the midst of our doubts is to rescue us and to grow us. Now, The question for us is, what is our responsibility? What should we do in the midst of our doubts? And there's several ways to say it. The way on the screen is, we need to listen to him. Another way of saying it is, we need to keep leaning on him. We we need to keep turning to him. We need to keep leaning in on him in the midst of our uncertainties and the midst of our doubts. And 
one of the things that Matthew chapter 28 does for us is it teaches us how do we lean in on our Savior? How do we listen to our Savior in the midst of our hesitations, in the midst of our uncertainties, in the midst of our doubts? And the first way that we do that is by trusting Christ's authority. Think of the picture, okay? It's a familiar text. We've all read it, studied it, walked through it before, but think, think of the picture, okay? So you have the disciples coming, worshiping Christ, but doubting. Now, it's a good thing that Christ is so different than all of us, right? Because, you, you, again, you maybe are different than me on this one, but I read the text, and I think that if I was really thinking through what was going on, I might go aside and talk to the Father and say, I think we need another plan. These guys are still doubting. <laughs> I think we need... I'm roaming around a little bit much for the camera. I'm sorry. Um, I think... I think and, and I think I might look at these guys and say, really? <laughs> You're still doubting after all you have seen? But what does Christ do? Okay, He's, he's leaving them with a charge that's been passed on down from believer to believer to us, a charge to make disciples of all the nations. But he starts by saying something really important. You can trust me because all authority has been entrusted to me. All authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. Notice how he meets them in their doubts. Notice, notice his first words to them are not make disciples, as important as those words are. His first words are drawing on memory they have and helping them to carry that forward. You, he, basically, he's saying, you've seen my authority exercised on the earth. And they had. I mean, who among us would not have wanted to witness what these disciples had witnessed in seeing him heal people and seeing him raise Lazarus from the dead and seeing him care tenderly for people and speak, speak in ways that kept people from victimizing others? Who among us wouldn't have wanted to witness that? And he's saying to them, you've seen all of that now that authority that you've seen me exercise on the earth belongs to me. It's permanently mine, never to be taken away from me. It's been given to me. And it's not just an authority that existed while I was here on the earth. It's an authority exists in heaven and on earth. And what's he doing? He's speaking into these disciples' doubts. He's speaking into their hesitations. He's saying, listen to me. Lean in on me. You can trust me. You can trust my authority. It is unchanging. You saw the picture of our daughter, Johanna. It might be a little dangerous to share this story because you cross paths with her from time to time in, in, in this place of the world, but she knows I tell the story. I forgot to tell her this morning when we left. I was going to tell the story, but I'll tell her tonight when we get back. When our children were little, they always went to Grandma and Grandpa's house for vacation Bible school. It was the Cousins Retreat Go to, mom and, go, to, go to grandma and grandpa's house for vacation Bible school. Grandma and grandpa loved it. The kids loved it. My daughter especially loved it because she was the oldest female grandchild. And as the oldest female grandchild, that meant she was invested with a fair amount of authority uh, over her cousins. And it was a help to grandma. She helped grandma and she exercised that authority well most of the time. Uh, but then that week of vacation Bible school would come to an end, and my little girl got used to being the one in charge. 
and she came home. And she's not in charge at home. There's only one queen in my house, and you've met her already. And there was this cycle. It took us a couple years to realize this is a pattern. Uh, there was this cycle at the end of Vacation Bible School every year of Johanna seeking to wrest authority from her mother. <laughs> oh, and it took a few days for that to sort out. And Dad learned that strategic presence and strategic absence was important to help that along. If I tried to force something there, it didn't go well, but that's a whole other message and lesson. But uh, um, Christ's authority never changes, right? And you look around you, and there are times, especially in the last year, there are times where it would be easy to scratch your head and say, really, he's still in charge? It doesn't much seem like it. It doesn't much feel like it. But you look at Scripture, and you look at how the flow of Scripture is, and it's the way way he's done things all along. It shouldn't surprise us. And there's coming a day the Son has been entrusted with all authority. He has that authority in heaven like he had on earth, and there's going to be a day where he's going to be back here on earth. And that authority is going to be exercised in a way that is all wise, all proper, all just, all holy, And those of us who know his son will be eyewitnesses to that. We will see that. What do we do in our doubts? What do we do in our hesitations? We keep listening to him. We keep leaning on him. We keep trusting in him. And one of the ways we do that is we trust his authority. He is the one who's in charge, even when and especially when it doesn't seem like it. What happens next? After Christ declares to them this possession of authority... Uh, in heaven and on earth, he calls on them to obey. He calls on them to obey. And again, don't miss what's going on here. In the middle of their doubts, while they were worshiping and doubting, he says, obey me. And it's, it's one of our responses in the middle of doubts. We say to ourselves things about ourselves and things about life that are not God's things. And we come into a conclusion I can't do anything in serving the Lord till I get these doubts solved, till I get these hesitations solved. If you've ever been in that place and you make it your aim to not doubt and hesitate, what do you do more? You doubt more and you hesitate more. Uh, But Christ is not saying, okay, guys, we have to roll up our sleeves here. We have to solve every single doubt and hesitation you have before you can serve me. He's saying, no, serve me. In the middle of your doubts, in the middle of your hesitations, in the middle of the reservations you have, what should you do? Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You know this, the central command, make disciples. How does that unfold? The first piece of it is go. For some people, that involves leaving where they live to go to another place, maybe even on the other side of the world, to carry the message of the gospel. But for all believers, the text is saying, as you live your life, make disciples. You know, let, let me say it this way. Okay? Disciple-making ought to become the orienting purpose of every one of our relationships. You know, try to make, you know, one of the ways to make sense out of the relationships that God has placed us in is we, he wants us to make disciples and he wants to us to let fellow believers influence us to be better disciples. Make disciples. You think about this. You, you meet an unbeliever and before you know anything else about the, an unbeliever, even his or her name, you know some things about that person. 
you know that person is created in the image of God because God says so. You know that person is a sinner because God says so. You know that person lives in a fallen world around fallen people, so that person suffers. And you know that person is a person for whom Christ died. And those statements about who God says that person is ought to govern our responses. doesn't answer every question, but it gives some starting points, helps us to know what do we do and what don't we do. And sometimes it's more of the what we don't do, right? <laughs> well, I know I shouldn't do that. Uh, on the basis of who God says they are. That person becomes a believer, we know more about them, even if we haven't met them. Now that person is related to us eternally as brother in Christ, as sister in Christ. Uh, they are a fellow disciple. And God wants us to use this commission, as it were, this direction from Christ, make disciples to be a foundational orienting purpose for every one of our relationships. Not all of us will have opportunity to fully share the gospel with an unbeliever, but how we interact with them, even in a moment of time, can promote the truth of the gospel or distract from the truth of the gospel. How we interact with one another as fellow believers, how you interact with fellow believers outside of the wall, we can either have a part in potentially drawing people's hearts to greater strength and faith in Christ or distracting them from that or pushing them away from that. And thank the Lord that none of us are ever the only work of God in another person's life, right? Your story of your, the work of God in your life, there may be one or two or three key people, but they're not the only people. And that's good for us to remember, too. In this making disciples and having disciple-making being an orienting purpose of our lives, we can be what God allows us to be in the moments he allows us with a person, and we can trust him with how to use it. Go. Engage, engage in this task of making disciples. Those that come to Christ, baptize them. Identify them with Christ and have them join the local church. And then you have this statement. Teach them to observe. Teach them to live out all that Christ has commanded. The truth is lost when it's not taught, right? You can't, you can't cling to something you don't know. You can't trust, you can't understand and explain and trust truth if you don't know it. Truth is lost when it's not taught. Teach them. But truth is also lost when it's not lived. Teach them to observe. Teach them to live. And the teaching and instruction that we give to one another, that we get, has knowledge to it. It has to. You can't, you can't do what Jesus would do if you didn't know what it was and what it is. You can't live as a disciple of Christ if you don't know him and you don't know details about him and facts and truth of the word. But if you go back to James, knowing it leads where? Knowing it without doing it leads to deception. James says, don't just be a hearer, be a doer. And knowing it and living it leads to a preservation of the truth, a teaching of the truth that is significant, central uh, to the path of making disciples. So we listen to our Savior not only by trusting his authority, and leaning in on that, we listen to our Savior in the times of doubts by being obedient, by just engaging in what he entrusts us to do in this big picture of disciple-making. 
as I look around at you, there's a number of you for whom it's obvious that you have corrective lenses, you have glasses. I suspect that there's even more of you that are wearing contact lenses. Uh, so, you know, that, that's okay. Um, if I asked you now to take off your corrective lenses and trade them with the person next to you, how would that go for you? Not well at all, right? Sherry and I are like kind of opposite in our problems of vision, so it would, it would be really, really bad, not to mention face shape and all of those things, but it would just be really bad to wear each other's glasses. One of the challenges of our lives in the middle of our doubts is we have on the wrong pair of glasses. You know, we, 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 we focus on other purposes of life or other desires that we have, even desires for good things in our life, and we don't have on this pair of glasses that Matthew 28 calls us to have on. Our role in the middle of our doubts as fellow sinners, as fellow sufferers, as fellow people in need of the Lord is to engage in making disciples, encouraging one another in our own discipleship, taking that from, out he from in here to out there, taking advantage of whatever opportunities God gives to us to be like Christ and to take those down the path to sharing the truth of the gospel so people can come to saving faith in him. So what do you do in your doubts? You keep listening. You keep leaning. You trust his authority. You keep obeying. The worst thing we can do is to stop obeying till we figure it out. We keep obeying, keep doing the next thing of obedience to the Lord, and then what do we do? We rest in the reality that he promises his presence with us. Look at the bookends of this commission, okay? Rightfully so, we often focus on the centerpiece and the commands, and we should, but we shouldn't miss what's on either side of it. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. And then he slows down, and he says, lo, behold. It's a very polite way of saying, listen to me carefully now. <laughs> Look me in the eye now. And you think about what he's trying to say, okay? I'm, I, he's present with us. And he, if, if he was aiming for word efficiency, he didn't hit the mark. Because he could have just said, I'm with you. In, in English, that's four words, I'm with you. In the language that the New Testament was recorded in, that's three words because the pronoun and the verb were built into the verb. If you've ever learned a foreign language that's highly inflected, you know that you can just say the verb and it's got the pronoun built into the spelling of the verb. That's what's going on here. So Christ could have simply ended all this with saying three words, four in English, I'm with you, and been done with it. But he's trying to make a point that sticks. So he says, look at me listen to me. This isn't a scolding. This is an invitation. Look at me. Listen to me. I am with you always. And those languages that are the, the fancy word is inflected. Those languages where they change the spelling of a word to put the pronoun with the verb, word order is not as important as it is in English. In English, we kind of we, we change spellings. That drives us nuts, and we don't always get that right. But we change spellings, but we often use word order to demonstrate this is the subject, this is the verb. And you don't have to do that in a lot of languages. And when you don't have to do that in a language, you can change the order for emphasis. 
And so when this is recorded for us in Matthew, in the language that Matthew is originally recorded in, the order is different in English, but it makes no sense to us in English, but I put it in the screen that way. Lo, I, with you, am. And so what's Christ doing? Christ slows down and he says, look at me, listen to me. You know, the way of saying, I'm going to say something really important now. I, with you, am. Picks a word order that makes the point. And that would have been enough, right? I with you am. That's a pretty d- different way of doing it, different way of getting attention. But he doesn't stop there. I'm with you am even to the end of the age. And he picks a word to the end, to the till everything is finished, till it's done. He picks a word that is the same word he spoke on the cross when he said it's finished. It doesn't translate well in English to make it the same word. But to the disciples, they would have heard it, and it would, have, it would have connected. On the cross, he says, it's done, it's the end, okay? It's the end, I'm, I'm finishing the work of the cross. And here he says, I'm going to be with you until it's all done, until it's all finished, until it's all complete. Where is Christ when we doubt? Where is Christ when we hesitate? In us, right? He's given us his spirit. He's placed his spirit in us. And... It's, it's, it's sometimes, we sometimes don't sense that experientially. There's times where he feels far from us. But as we said yesterday at the luncheon, those are the times where he says to us, Psalm 46, I am a, pres- a, a helper who is very present in trouble. I'm a very present help in trouble. So how is it that we respond in our doubts? We respond by trusting the promise of his presence. And then just quickly, what did the presence of Christ mean to the disciples? Well, we looked at one of the storms on the Sea of Galilee where his presence met peace. Right before one of those experiences was the feeding of the 5,000. I worked my way through college and first part of seminary by doing catering and dining services work. And there's one thing I learned, well, there's a lot of things I learned, but there's one thing that's been indelibly burnt into my memory of that time is people want what they want to eat when they want to eat it, and you better have it. (laughs) Right? You go out to eat. What's one of the most frustrating things when you go out to eat? You pick on the menu, and you've settled on this. Oh, you know, we're out of bananas today. (laughs) We're out of of the steak today. Oh, really? So the feeding of 5,000 really captures my attention because these disciples are like, we need to send these people away. They're all getting hungry. And Christ says, take an inventory. And they take an inventory. Okay, we've got these few fish and these few loaves. And Christ says, okay, set them down. And having done food service type things, I'm like, we're creating an expectation here. We are not going to fill. And people are, this is the place, you know, Thomas says, well, let's go with him to the death. You know, at one, t- this is the place I would have said that. Okay, guys, we're all going to die now because these people are not going to get what they want and it's going to be bad. And what does he do? The disciples are seated. He blesses the food. They distribute it and they gather up 12 baskets. Provision. It's the, pl- it's the place where all those who wanted to use Christ for their own devices said, great, let's make him king. And we'll take back we'll take back the empire from Rome because with a king like this who can raise the dead, with a king like this who can can make you know make all the provisions we need, what army could lose, let's take him. And you know, before we're too hard on them, uh, we we want to use God's authority and power for our own desires sometimes too. Uh, but God's provision. And then you think of Peter and his denials of Christ. You know, I'm going to go with you to the death. Nope, you're going to deny me three times. And what happens? He denies him three times, one gospel 
author records for us that Christ looked at him and Peter goes out and weeps bitterly. And what happens? Who seeks whom? Christ seeks Peter, right? And Christ restores Peter. And so the presence of Christ, and we can go on and on on that. The presence of Christ meant something to the disciples. The presence of Christ means something to us and ought to mean something to, to us. He's with us always until this is all done, until it's finished. So God wants us to listen to our Savior, to keep leaning on him in the midst of our uncertainties, in the midst of our doubts. How do we do it? We trust that he's in charge. Even when it doesn't look like it, he's in charge. And there will be a day where he'll be with us and we'll be with him and he'll be ruling and reigning here on the earth. We obey. Obey the command of the Great Commission. Let disciple-making orient our lives. And from that then flows all of the other direction, instruction, commands of the Word of God. And then he's always with us. And we can rest in that. We don't have to rest in silencing all of our doubts. We don't have to rest in ridding ourselves of all of our fears. We can rest in him. He's with us. Clear until this is all done. Let's pray. Father, thank you for who you are and for your work. Thank you for this plan of redemption where you willingly sacrificed your son in our place, where he willingly offered his life for ours, the one who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we can be clothed in the righteousness of God. Thank you for that. Thank you for the privilege of knowing your heart, of knowing uh, how you respond to us in our doubts and in our hesitations. And thank you for directing us. Thank you for instructing us that we need to keep trusting, keep leaning. Thank you for using us in our doubts, using us in our hesitations to do your work and to uh, be formed more and more into the image of your Son. And thank you for the reality that you're always with us. You've placed the spirit of your son in us. He's with us. He directs us through your word. We're thankful that he speaks words on our behalf that we can't even find in our own hearts and that we can rest uh, in the promise that you are always with us. Thank you that you are a God in times of doubt that purposes to rescue us and purposes to grow us. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.